You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Recall a time in your uh, memories where someone offended you, they wronged you, they hurt you. Uh, Or maybe you don't even really need to recall it in your memories because maybe it's today, it's this week, that you're living in a situation. Uh, There are a few common ways that we respond as people when we've been wronged. One is ignorance. You try to just pretend that it never happened. You try to look the other way. Some of us, we might rationalize it. We might try to explain the other person's actions. We might try to excuse them for themselves or explain it away. Some of us, we blame ourselves, where we kind of think, well, maybe I deserved it somehow. Maybe I had it coming. I'm sure it's my fault one way or another. Maybe for you, you internalize the offense. That means you just kind of bottle it up, and you try to suppress it in your subconscious, and it turns into bitterness or resentment, or eventually what's bottled up ends up coming out explosively. Uh, For some of you, you know that when you're wronged, you you don't try to excuse the other person. In fact, you're going to get back at the other person because you're going to get very angry. Some people even explosively angry, immediately yelling, in some cases, violence. Or maybe you'll just try to get back at them in some other way. You're going to try to get payback. I want to tell you a story. When I think about being wronged, there's this one story from second grade Josh, Okay, So picture me. Little tiny second grader. I had switched schools in the second grade. And so uh, my family moved across town. I didn't have any friends. I was also fairly shy, and I wasn't great at making friends anyway, so that didn't help. And uh, every recess, I would play tetherball by myself, like Napoleon Dynamite style, right? <laughs> I played tetherball by myself, and I got pretty good at it, and I uh, just kind of like minded my own business. And then one day, I'm just walking around uh, the playground, and a Frisbee out of nowhere, thunk, hits me right in the face. And I'm like, you know, like dazed for a moment. It hits me right in my nose. And you know where you have the, like it makes you tear up like immediately, right? And I'm like looking around, looking around. And I hear, uh, I hear over across the playground, this little kid. His name is Ben. Ben, if you're watching this, I remember. He's laughing, his little head up, ha, ha, like he thinks it's the funniest thing ever. And I'm just like, you know, like the rage is building. And uh, he comes over to grab the Frisbee back, and I pick it up. And then it's like this tug of war with the Frisbee. And of course, he yanks it out of my hand. So now I don't even have the satisfaction of not giving his Frisbee back. And so I just can't take it anymore. And I kick him in the shin. And he looks behind me, and there's the recess monitor like right behind me. She didn't see anything else that transpired. She, all she saw was little Josh kicking Ben in the shin. And uh, I got put on the fence for the rest of recess that day. So I tell you that story is hopefully I don't always respond to, to, uh, to wrongdoing in that way. But I tell you that story because we might expect Payback, we might expect retaliation out of a second grader. 
out of a child, but some of us have never matured in this area. Some of us have never outgrown those childish payback kinds of responses to wrongdoing. And today's teaching from Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, this is the fifth out of six sayings in Matthew chapter five. They all tie back to uh, Jesus saying that he did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. And then he proceeds to go through six different Old Testament passages. And he's not abolishing those laws. He's explaining, reinterpreting, giving their fuller meaning. And the one today has to do with how do you respond to being wronged, the saying that we're going to look at today. And you're not going to believe what Jesus expects you to do in the face of evil. And even if you believe it, you're not going to like it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. If these words did not come from Jesus Christ himself, we'd be so tempted to avoid them altogether. This is radical, ridiculous behavior in the face of evil. And the law that Jesus cites is called lex talionis. It's found in the Old Testament, but it actually predates the Old Testament. This is the oldest law. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is the oldest law known to mankind. Do you realize this? Lex talionis essentially says the punishment fits the crime. Does that seem like a good law? It's a very good law. It's the reason why, even before the Mosaic Covenant, it was a law in human history. It was found in the Code of Hammurabi in the 18th century BC. And it's found outside of the Bible, but it's also found at least three times in the Old Testament. Here are a few examples. Exodus chapter 21, we actually looked at this. This is in, uh, in the case where there's a fight between two men, and they accidentally injure a pregnant woman or her unborn child. This is what it says. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. We looked at this a few weeks ago in uh, God's sanct- the sanctity of life, right? That, that God cares so much about uh, a pregnant woman, the unborn child, that if you damage them, the same punishment you will receive yourself. That's a specific case, but there's actually a broader case in general injury. Leviticus chapter 24, 19 through 20, if anyone injures his neighbor, that's just like anyone, right? Anyone in the community injures someone else. As he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. And then there's another case in Deuteronomy 19, verse 21, that specifically has to do with bearing false witness, which in and of itself is a big deal. It's one of the Ten Commandments, do not bear false witness. Essentially, what it refers to is accusing someone of a crime. And if it comes to find out you accuse someone of a crime and they didn't actually do it, guess who's going to receive the punishment for that crime? 
You will. Your eye shall have no pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Because essentially what would happen is if you're lying about someone committing one of these crimes, they would receive a very severe punishment for the crime. And if it it come to find out, you're actually lying about that, you would receive the crime yourself. So that's lex talionis, the punishment fits the crime. And the reality is, this law, as in the other laws that Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter five, there's nothing wrong with it. It's actually a good law. It's fair, it's equity, it actually defines justice. You might say that justice is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And one of the beautiful things about this law is that it prevents escalation. Escalation would be someone punches you in the face and you get a black eye, so you retaliate and you give them two black eyes. Someone knocks out your tooth, so you take two of their teeth or three of their teeth, right? That's what's called escalation. And lex talionis, the punishment fits the crime, prevents that. It says that the the punishment that you receive for wrongdoing should be exact and equal to the damages caused. And by the time of Christ in the first century, very rarely was this actually carried out in a physical sense. Usually this was a monetary punishment. You would pay what's called damages, which is very similar to how things work today. Right? You might get jail time or you might get a fine if you wrong someone. Generally speaking, you don't actually take someone's eye for your damaged eye. You'll pay damages in that, in that case. And that's how it was in Jesus' day in the context that he was speaking to as well. But, but Jesus is not saying that there's anything wrong with this law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, which is kind of a misunderstanding. I hear that sometimes. People kind of downplay this law. But is there any, let me ask you this question about some of the other laws that Jesus said. Is there anything wrong with the law you shall not murder? Is there anything wrong with the law you shall not commit adultery? Right? Those other laws, Jesus is not abolishing them. He's fulfilling them in that he's actually holding his followers to a higher standard. He's holding us to a ridiculous standard. Now we have to answer this question though. When it comes to Uh, following Jesus in this way, living a life where we turn the other cheek, does Jesus expect disciples to be doormats? What I mean by that is, does he expect us to put ourselves in unwise situations, to let people walk all over us? And I don't think that's quite what he's getting at. I don't think that's the appropriate application of this passage. In fact, you might say it like this. We're supposed to turn the other cheek, not a blind eye. Turn the other cheek, don't turn a blind eye to evil. So think about this for a moment. Personally, we're supposed to turn the other cheek, but if you're a parent and one of your children hurts the other child, are you supposed to say to the child that's been injured, just turn the other cheek, or are you supposed to discipline the child who hurt the other child? What's good parenting? Well, depending on how bad the damages are, right, you can use your discernment. Think about a judge who's in a courtroom and someone is clearly guilty and they've, they've wronged the innocent party and they say to the innocent party, think about a judge, 
Maybe that judge happens to be a Christian. They say to the innocent party, don't you know you're supposed to turn the other cheek? And they let the guilty person off the hook. Is that a good thing for that judge to do? No, that's what we call turning a blind eye to evil. And Jesus is not saying turn a blind eye to evil. In fact, you can see this in Jesus's own life. When he endured personal harm, he suffered silently. But could you say accurately that Jesus turned a blind eye to evil? Of course not. He's calling out evil everywhere he sees it. He's standing up for justice. He's flipping tables and cleansing the temple. And need I remind you that Jesus will return, and he will judge every human being who's ever existed, the righteous and the unrighteous alike. So what's the difference? How can we know whether there's a situation where we're called to turn the other cheek or a situation where it's actually going too far and we end up turning a blind eye? And I think a good distinction is there's a difference between your personal responsibility to uphold justice and your positional responsibility to uphold justice. See, justice, lex talionis, the punishment fits the crime, all of those examples are civil laws, which is really good for governing society and preventing chaos and anarchy. And we should hope that people who are in law enforcement, people who are judges, and people who have in their position of authority the responsibility to uphold justice, we should hope that they do so. And you may be in one of those positions, whether you have a business, you should try to seek equity and justice and fairness in how you run your business. If you have a bad employee that keeps wronging people, who's embezzling money, you can fire them. You don't, have to, you don't have to turn a blind eye and say, oh, I'm supposed to turn the other cheek and let them continue to embezzle money for my company, right? Fire that person. If you have a position of authority, and that's why I say even as a parent, you're in a position where you might personally need to extend mercy, but as a parent, you're held responsible for upholding justice within your home. As a pastor, I'm, supposed to, I'm not supposed to like let heresy run rampant in our church, right? There are certain things where God holds us accountable, but every single one of those cases, notice, are positional responsibilities. It comes with the job. It comes with the territory. But Jesus is speaking personally. Every single one of the examples Jesus gives is if someone slaps who in the cheek? You. Not if someone slaps your family in the cheek or your wife in the cheek or your child in the cheek, let them do that. He's saying if someone hurts you. And so Jesus is holding us accountable for not upholding justice, but what he expects of us is something called mercy. Justice is they get what they deserve and mercy says they don't. They don't get what they deserve. And mercy could be either negative or positive. Mercy, in in the negative sense, is a person wrongs you, and they deserve to be punished for that wrongdoing, and you withhold the punishment. I'm not going to do to them what they deserve. Or it could be in a positive sense. Someone did nothing to deserve your kindness, and you you extend over-the-top kindness anyways. Both of those are examples, as we'll see uh, Jesus giving us, of mercy. Because what happens 
is when we try to uphold justice ourselves. We, say, we, we know this saying, taking justice, I'm gonna take justice into my own hands. If you are the victim in a situation of wrongdoing, you're gonna end up kicking a little kid in the shin. He accidentally hit me with a Frisbee, and I intentionally kicked him in the shin. That's, called, that's ex- escalation. And in my mind, the punishment fits the crime, right? Eye for an eye, a shin for a shin in that situation. But the reality is, you are the most biased person to determine justice if you are the victim. You're the most biased person. You might think you're, you're, you're giving them lex talionis. You might think you're giving them an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but in fact, you're actually escalating things. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. says, hate multiplies hate in a descending, viral, uh, a descending spiral of violence. And we see that when we try to take justice into our own hands. We see hate multiplying hatred. John Stott clarifies what Jesus is saying. His purpose, speaking of Jesus' purpose in this teaching, was to forbid revenge, not encourage injustice, dishonesty, or vice. John Stott, his purpose was to forbid revenge. That's what Jesus is trying to get at. He's not trying to say that we need to turn a blind eye or we need to let evil run rampant in our world. And it's at this point we need to ask the question, so if it's not your job to uphold justice, unless it actually is your job positionally, right? If it's not your job to uphold justice, whose job is it? It's God's. Trust God to make things right. That should be the appropriate response of a follower of Jesus, to trust God to make things right. Guess who is a perfect judge? Guess who understands the situation better than you do? Guess who always makes perfect judgment calls? Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Paul writes this to the church. Beloved, never avenge yourself. It's essentially just a parallel to what Jesus is teaching us. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And this is something that actually should empower followers of Jesus to be able to extend supernatural kinds of mercy and forgiveness. Because what forgiveness is saying is not that the person will never be held accountable for their crime, it's just choosing that they're gonna be not on your hook, but they're on God's. You're gonna leave it to God's perfect judgment. And God is a better judge than you and I will ever be, but we have to also see this this side of God, that not only does God have wrath and judgment, but God is also way more merciful than you and I are. He's way more loving. He's way more patient, and he's way more kind. In fact, Jesus is is waiting to come back and return and judge the earth so that, Peter writes this, God is not, he's not slow in coming back and and that we're thinking like, oh, where are you, Jesus? Why don't you just come back and judge the earth? He's not slow, he's patient because he wants to give people an opportunity to repent, an opportunity to, to, to turn from their evil ways, to make things right. And so you might say, well, okay, waiting until judgment day is an awful long time. Really? I'm expected to just, I mean, like, what what if there's a a situation where there needs to be immediate consequences, and I'm not in a, a position to hold those people accountable, what should I do in those situations? Well, if it can't wait till judgment day, the very next chapter, Romans 13, 
Paul writes this to the church. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. The reality is, God eventually will make all things right. Every wrong will be made right. Every judgment will be perfect and dished out by God himself. But in the meantime, God has instituted the authority of government to actually hold people accountable right now. So what should you do if a burglar breaks into your house? Should you make them dinner? Well, you can, but you can also call 911. It's appropriate. It's appropriate to do that. You can rely on the government. And the government, in fact, this is actually really crazy when we think about this. It acts as an extension of God's justice, a more immediate version of God's justice and it enacts immediate consequences on people. And so, what are we gonna do? We're gonna understand it's justice is God's job, or it's the government's job in in certain cases. It might even be your job if you have a position where you are responsible for upholding justice, but in personal situations, God is saying, your job is not justice, your job is mercy. Show mercy. Here's what mercy means. Here's our main point for today. It means you lay down your rights and you do what is right. Now, when you even read that first line, lay down your rights, does that not seem like blasphemy? And I want to say it's not blasphemy according to Scripture. It's blasphemy against the political idolatry of our day. Because I hear so many Americans, and I'm going to say it, so many American Christians making arguments for my rights. Don't you know we have to stand up for our rights in this, rights in this? And you might be able to make that argument from the Constitution, but I wanna challenge you. Are you making that argument according to the teachings of Christ? And which one supersedes the other, the Constitution or Christ? For For a follower of Jesus, we're going to intentionally lay down your rights and focus on doing what is right in God's eyes. That means there are situations, and these, we'll look at them in a second, these examples Jesus gives, you are going to choose to lose. You're gonna choose to lose so the kingdom of God can win. This kind of of practice is radical non-retaliation. It's silent suffering. It's ridiculous blessing. Like I said, you're not gonna believe it. And even if you believe it, you're not gonna like it. This is a difficult kind of life to embody. The goal is not fairness or getting even. The goal is mercy. And mercy seems incredibly unfair. It seems unfair. And I think back to the the cries of us as children, or maybe if you have kids, that's not fair. And every parent in the room says, life's not fair. (laughs) The reality is mercy is not fair. And mercy is what Jesus expects of you as his follower. And so often, we say that stuff to our kids. Well, life's not fair. Better get used to it. But we don't live that out ourselves. I hear many angry adults crying out, well, that's not fair. We need to make it right. We need to stand up. Mercy doesn't make any sense. They get what they don't deserve, or they don't get what they do deserve. But we're going to lay down our rights, and we're going to do what's right in God's eyes. Here's four examples 
These are the four examples. They're micro examples. Jesus hits them real quick, but I wanna slow down and go through each one. The first one is the most famous one. You've been slapped? Turn the other cheek. You've been slapped? Turn the other cheek. Specifically, Jesus says, you've been slapped on the right cheek. And if most people, I think it's like nine out of 10, or right-handed, essentially what this is, is it's a backhand to your cheek. That's the picture that Jesus is giving. And this isn't just an act of violence, certainly it is, but it's actually an action of insult, that insult to injury. Uh, in, in ancient texts, we find that a backhanded slap is twice as offensive as a slap with an open palm. So if you get slapped with an open palm, at least they didn't backhand you, right? That's kind of <laughs> the idea. And I can't think of a better, I don't know if it, I would say this is a good example, but it, it, it is very fitting example of the, the Oscars. Will Smith, Chris Rock, anyone remember that? Where... And that's an example of escalation. Chris Rock makes a joke at the expense of Will Smith's wife. And then he starts cussing him out from, like heckling him and he goes up on stage and he slaps. Have you seen like a meme at least? You know this happened, anyone know? Pop culture reference, okay. <laughs> and you know, there are a lot of responses, right? I'm not here to get like, oh, he's standing up for his wife or whatever, okay? The reality is, what Will Smith did to Chris Rock is one of the most shameful things. Beyond, and people are like, oh, the violence at the Oscars. I'm like, okay, there's literally going to be memes with Will Smith like winding up to slap Chris Rock in the face for generations to come. Humi like that is one, and it's like on a, a stage of this night where everyone's watching the Oscars, there's like millions of people around the world are seeing this, it is one of the most shameful things, right? And that's that, not like this extreme of an example, but that's the example that Jesus is giving. The thing that Jesus is highlighting is not necessarily the violence, but it's the offense and the insult. And for you, I don't know if you've ever been slapped in the face, but we still use that line, a backhanded comment. And that's where that comes from, right? How offensive it is to be slapped with some situations, what Jesus is calling us to do is endure and absorb the ridicule and the insult, not to get back at them, not to speak evil of them, not to start a new rumor or gossip about them, but to endure it and let your life speak for itself. Now, two clarifications on this, because this is a very popular teaching and I think has been misapplied in certain ways. The first one is Jesus is not, again, I, I really believe this. The thing Jesus is emphasizing is not the violence of a backhanded slap, but it's the insult of it. And what that should tell us is this is not a command to stay in an abusive situation. Uh, notice the example is not if someone is beating you to death, Roll over and take it. Although, you know, you can look at the life of Christ and martyrs, you can, can look at those things, but in this example and in this teaching, what Jesus is emphasizing is the insult. And so I would just say to you, if you, you are in a dangerous situation, an abusive situation, your kids are in an abusive situation, this teaching from Jesus is not to turn a blind eye and continue to be in that situation, but to find safety. Does that make sense? That's the first clarification. The second clarification 
is some might use this passage, again, this short micro example, as a decisive case for absolute pacifism. Absolute pacifism is that there's never a case where force should be used, even by law enforcement officers or in times of war or even in capital punishment, those kind of things. If people wanna make that argument from scripture, they're gonna have to use other passages to make that argument. This is not, it it could lean towards nonviolence, and I think it is a radical form of nonviolence to extend mercy if someone has wronged you or even harmed you physically. Someone hit you in the face with a Frisbee, right? That would be a great example. I shouldn't hit him back with a Frisbee. But it's not a decisive case for absolute pacifism. And so we can have that conversation another time, but, but just to clarify that. So that's the first example. If you've been slapped, what should we do? Turn the other cheek. Second example, have you been sued? Give more than they ask. This just doesn't seem right, does it? Someone is taking you to court, and to be fair, maybe you owe them money. Maybe you actually do owe them money. And what they're suing you for is your tunic, AKA the shirt off your own back. Your tunic was like your your regular everyday clothes. And what Jesus says is give them your cloak, which is your outer garment, which was much more valuable than your everyday clothes. I mean, think about that. If you have a nice winter jacket, it probably costs more than your t-shirt does. And then think about this. You go to the courtroom, and this is absurd, again, absurd example, where you show up in the courtroom, and you're holding your clothes, and you're standing there in your underwear. (laughs) Embarrassment, shame, and you're like, here you go, here you go. Go above and beyond. If you've taken something, if you've offended someone, maybe even accidentally, go above and beyond. Don't don't just try to just pay them back. Go above and beyond to make things right. The example I think about is I think about Zacchaeus the tax collector who lived a life and he made a good living defrauding people as a tax collector, taking more money, kind of scamming people out of their savings. And he, Jesus spends time with him and he believes in Jesus and he repents. And this is what it says in Luke 19, verse eight. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it exactly what? I will restore it fourfold. That is an example of what Jesus is saying when he's saying if someone wants your shirt, give them your cloak as well. Go above and beyond. Is that justice? No, what is it? It's mercy. You're giving them more than they deserve. The third example, have you been forced? Have you been forced by a Roman soldier to carry something? Go the extra mile. Now this phrase, go the extra mile, is widely used. We usually use it in hospitality. Oh, that hotel that I stayed at, they really went the extra mile. That's great to use it like that as a saying, but that totally misses the the scriptural uh, force here. Essentially, this word forced is angaryuo, and it was used specifically of Roman soldiers conscripting labor commandeering you to be a temporary slave to carry something for them. And this was especially offensive if you were Jewish, who would be like an an oppressed people by the Romans. At any given moment, a Roman soldier could come up to you and they could angar you owe you. They could come up to you and they could say, I don't feel like carrying this stuff. And it wasn't even because you worked for them, it was just because they were lazy. They didn't want to do their job. 
They didn't want to have to carry stuff. And they would say, because I'm in a position of authority, you have to carry my stuff at least one mile. What does Jesus say? Go the extra mile. We see an example of this, the same exact word, angariuo, used in Matthew 27, verse 32. With Simon of Cyrene, do you remember this? When Jesus is on the way to Golgotha and he's collapsing under the sheer weight of the cross, not because Jesus wasn't strong, it's because he was already beaten within an inch of a life before they crucified him. And so they pull a random guy from the crowd, Simon of Cyrene. This is what it says. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled, angaruo, forced him to carry his cross. That is like literally the example that Jesus is giving. Simon of Cyrene hated the Romans, I'm sure. And he was probably humiliated to be asked to do this task during a crucifixion. The cross would have been bloody, it would have been heavy, it would have been difficult work. What Jesus says is you should be obedient to the government. You should be respectful and honoring. Go above and beyond. And I, do you guys remember 2020 and the pandemic? Anyone? <laughs> the ever-changing mandates and the rules and all of this. And I heard, oh man, I used this passage in an Instagram Live one week. The week that we said, hey, we weren't gonna require masks, now we are because in Boise City, you know, we have to wear masks in these gathering sizes. And I think Jesus would want us to do this because I used this passage, Angoruo. And the pushback, like churches crumbled because Christians could not be forced to do anything. And I'm just, I hate to beat a dead horse. I know that's like 2020, that was like 10 years ago, right? Even if you disagree with the decision, even if the government's evil or corrupt or you didn't vote for them, not my president, whatever, it's not as corrupt as a Roman government. Caesar literally killing Christians, persecution, Roman soldiers, like mistreating, overtaxation, keeping people in a position of oppression. Jesus says, that is a situation where I expect you as my follower, but it's not right, it's not fair. Mercy is not fair. And Jesus, in a situation of personal responsibility, not positional responsibility, you have a position to fight a mandate, you have a whatever, sure, have that conversation in that arena. Guess what we're gonna do in our personal responsibility? We're gonna go over and above. We're gonna go the extra mile to be obedient and respectful and honoring of the God-instituted authorities. If I preached this two years ago, by the way, it's been insane. All right, fourth example. But it's clearly what Jesus is saying. It's clearly what Jesus is saying. Fourth example. Have you been begged by anyone? I like to think about these like billboards. Slapped, sued, forced, call this person. You know, <laughs> begged. Have you been begged before? Give to the one who's in need. Give to the one who's in need. What we like to do as Christians is we like to take all of Jesus's very clear teachings about requiring us to care for the poor. Thing for that person is probably for them to recognize that there, there are consequences to their actions. And if they wanna, you know, if they wanna live that kind of lifestyle and not get a job, then they probably deserve to, to learn that lesson the hard way. What Jesus says is he says, 
is someone begging you for maybe lunch, maybe food, or maybe they're begging you for a loan? Those are the two examples here in the last passage. He says, go ahead and give it to him. Go ahead and give it to him. We construct these narratives and these storylines that make us feel better about not being generous and taking care of the poor. And what we're doing essentially is we're painting a picture of the person. And maybe, maybe it's true or maybe it's not true. Most of the time I, I don't think it is true because we don't know the person. It's just kind of a, a, a storyline we make up in our head without getting to know the person. But what Jesus is saying in every single one of these examples is he is assuming that the person we're supposed to show mercy to is, it's in the very first verse, is evil. The assumption that the, do you think that the person who slaps you is just a great person? No. The person who's taking you to court, they're trying to sue you for the shirt off your back, you're assuming they're evil. Roman soldier, obviously evil. This person who's begging you for money, they're begging you for a loan, evil. Evil, 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 evil. Assume the person who needs your mercy is evil. And Jesus's principle throughout all four is do not resist the evil person. Not do not resist the evil one as in the devil. James, the brother of Jesus says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Literally the opposite. But assume, okay, so maybe that's true. Show mercy anyways. It's not gonna feel right. It's gonna feel like life's not fair. This isn't fair. This isn't justice. Well, guess what? It's not your job in that situation to uphold justice. Your job is mercy. God's job is justice. How can we show such ridiculous mercy? And it's at this point we realize that we hate mercy when we have to show it, but we desperately need mercy ourselves. We desperately need mercy ourselves. Douglas Sean O'Donnell says this, thanks to Jesus, we have to let go of our legalistic obsession with fairness. We are glad that Jesus was not fair with us, for if we were to have gotten what was coming to us, it would not have been good. Think about what we have coming to us without the cross. We have the wrath of God that we have to face. We have eternal punishment. We have hell that we have to face. We have to somehow make up for all our own sins and wrongdoings and offending the God of the universe. We have ultimate judgment that we have to face, and there is no way. If we would have got what we had coming to us, there's no way that we would be able to face that punishment. And yet that's exactly what Jesus came to do, not to condemn the world, John chapter 3, verse 17, but that the world might be saved through him. See, that same word for slapping your cheek, repeat so, backhanded slap, Jesus actually faced that when the Jews took him on trial the night before Good Friday, and they were spitting on him and rapizzo, slapping him in a humiliating way, saying, who prophesied? Prophesy who hit you. And I think about Jesus the entire way when, when he's uh, standing there in front of the, the Jewish high priest, and they say, why are you silent? Why are you suffering silently? And Jesus is showing mercy against his accusers. He's showing mercy against the people who beat him. Later, when, when he's there being literally whipped, beaten within an inch of his life by the Roman soldiers, he's showing mercy to those soldiers. On the cross, he utters that line, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. 
Peter, who was there in the garden, his gut reaction is kick him in the shin, right? Kick the soldiers in the shin, AKA pull out a sword, slice off someone's ear. That's his gut reaction. Later on, when he writes to the church who is facing persecution, I wanna read to you, this is the same guy, the Apostle Peter, I wanna read to you his reaction in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For this you have, you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Peter, Peter's learned his lesson by this point. He's saying God expects us to extend a supernatural kind of mercy because guess what? We've received that kind of mercy from him. Jesus was not just enduring the, the, the suffering and the punishment and the penalty of the cross, showing mercy on his accusers. He did that so that he might show mercy on you and show mercy on me, that by his wounds we might be healed through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that we might be forgiven from our sin, we might be made righteous, and we might be raised into a new life with him. That's the gospel. If you've never heard the gospel, that's it. And I want to I want to encourage you if you've never responded receive the good news of the gospel because God is rich in mercy. You realize that's how the Bible describes God? He's not he, he's not a pin, a penny pincher with mercy. He's not only wants to only show mercy to some and not to others. He doesn't show favorites of who gets his mercy. He is wealthy with mercy. And he wants to show mercy on you and invite you into his family. Today can be the day that you pray and ask God to forgive your sin and to lead your life, that you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to get baptized. You can sign up. You can find out more about baptism at hillcityboise.org slash baptism. And that's this beautiful ceremony where you demonstrate that you're dying to your old life, just as Christ died on the cross, and you're being raised up into a new life, receiving God's mercy. For those of you who maybe you have a faith in Jesus, here's the practice for you. It's difficult. It's unbelievable mercy. Bless those who curse you. Bless those who curse you. It's really simple to understand, extremely difficult to carry out, but it's not fair they're not, they're not gonna get what's coming to them. Maybe not, but it's not actually up to you to decide. God's job is justice, your job is mercy. See, justice, here's the thing about justice. It's a good rule for governing a society. It's a good thing if you want to make things right, but it's a horrible savior, a horrible way to change hearts, only mercy can reconcile a relationship. I don't know anyone who operated personally out of the principle, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, where there was a reconciliation in that relationship. It just doesn't happen. Justice makes things right, but only mercy can change hearts. Look at what Peter later wrote in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called you realize we are called to bless those who curse us, that you might obtain a blessing. So what are we gonna do, church? Are we gonna fight for our rights? Are we gonna, 
Are we going to make sure everything's fair? Or are we going to choose to lose so the kingdom of God can win? We're going to lay down our rights. We're going to trust God to make things right. We're going to keep doing what's right. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your ridiculous mercy. We don't understand it. It's difficult for us to extend to others, but we recognize and we own that you expect it from us. If you're gonna give that kind of mercy to us, God, you expect it from us to others. And we know that this is the kind of thing, this is the kind of mercy that changes the world. You've used this mercy to change our hearts, and you wanna use this mercy so that the light of the gospel might shine into the darkness of this world. God, I pray for wisdom, I pray for boldness, I pray for courage to not resist the evil people who are cursing us, who are difficult to us, who are keeping us down. But will we entrust ourselves to you? We acknowledge, God, that you are the ultimate judge. We acknowledge, Jesus, that you will return and you will set everything right. And so we await that day patiently, just as you are patient. And we long for the people who are persecuting, who are resisting, who are evil towards us. We long for those people, we pray for those people to come to a knowledge of the truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.